Hello there, Alaskans, wherever you are. Welcome to the Must Read Alaska Show. Coming to you from somewhere in Alaska. This is the place where we talk about, you guessed it, Alaska. Where we keep the mainstream media on their toes and where we are standing up for what's right and a world run by leftists. You can find out more by heading over to mustreadalaska.com and also checking out the Must Read Alaska YouTube channel for some really great content. But first, let's get this party started. Well, welcome everybody to the Must Read Alaska show. I'm your host, John. Coming to you live from somewhere in Alaska. And um, man, do we have a special treat for you today. But before I go into that, I want to thank all of our listeners, watchers, and readers of Must Read Alaska. Man, we are just making some headways. This last year, we won a national award by the American Association of Marketing and Communications. And uh, for one of the best government podcasts in the U.S., which is very exciting. And uh, we've reached about 120 million people this last year just on social media and our number top 200 on iTunes in our with our podcast in any given category or in our category in about four different countries at any given time in the month. So we do this for folks to have maybe a conservative side of the news that they may not otherwise get and for folks that are obsessed with Alaska all over the globe, which is very exciting. But without further ado, I want to welcome our guest today, Ian Brick, to the show. You're going to hear his story, which is just fascinating. This is a guy that is destined for success, and he doesn't let jail get in the way. Uh, without further ado, Ian, welcome to the Mustard Alaska show. Thank you for having me on, man. I appreciate it. Well, um, I, you know, there's a good chance that most people that listen to this in Alaska, you know, we all live in the woods here, may not have heard your story before. So you uh, take us back to when you first started these concerts. You were 15 years old, I think, and you got kind of the mindset. You probably were listening to Gary Vanderchuk or something, and you <laughs> thought to yourself, man, I could be going to school or I could be throwing these epic concerts and making money for myself, providing a good time for folks. Walk us through what that looked like and, you know, why, how did you even come up with this idea of throwing concerts in the first place when you're 15? Actually, the person I idolized back in the day was Scooter Braun, um, oh, because yeah. at that time he was just blowing up with Justin Bieber. Um, and I had like deep dived into his story about how he started in Atlanta as a club promoter and was essentially like broke and just throwing parties until he landed on Justin Bieber. Um, so that was kind of like my inspiration. I wasn't really paying attention to like Gary Vee or anything like that. But my story starts was essentially my friends and I do some criminal mischief on mischief night the night before Halloween. We foam these cars with insulating foam. It was like the, the president and the vice president uh, in, my, in our community. It was like a private community. Um, we get into trouble. We get caught. And it ends. we end up getting sentenced to community service. Um, I came up with the idea to sell these bracelets to the local homeless shelter. And then that took off. I completed my service hours. And ultimately, um, I decide that I want to take it to the next level. I want to expand beyond selling just bracelets. So I get the idea to start a school dance. And I convinced the, the high school principal, and I'm a sophomore in high school at the time, 15 years old, to let me throw this school dance. And it was a big success. I got like 300 kids to go. We raised a couple thousand dollars for charity. And that night at the school dance, I'm looking at the room and I put together everything, the DJ, the lighting. 
um, the event layout because I had gotten that experience growing up because my dad was a caterer. Um, so I grew up in the event business. And I get this idea that night that I can really monetize and make a business out of throwing events for high schoolers because there was a need that kids wanted to go to events that weren't ran by the high school. So that way they could uh, listen to like the uncensored music. They, they could have some fun with no, no adults around maybe. <laughs> Ex exactly. They could actually pregame pre and show up drunk. They could do like different things. So I start throwing these big house parties at my house. We're getting two, 300 kids to come. Some kids are paying five bucks a cup for like uh, mixed drinks or whatever. And then that just like blows up. We're getting like three or 400 kids to come. These house parties got so big that my parents had to get like this wedding tent to put into our yard. Um, like what were your parents thinking at the time? Were they thinking like my son is epic at throwing parties or were they thinking like this is not going to turn out well? Um, I mean, my mom definitely didn't like it. My dad would rather me be at the house where he could watch over me than me go to someone else's house. Yeah. Um, but they would be like upstairs in, in their room and I'd be like trying to go up there, serve them wine and dinner and try to like appease them. But my dad was always like walking around the yard, confiscating liquor, um, making sure that kids weren't, you know, drinking or, or dr drunk driving or anything like that or falling off like the ledge of where our house is because we're like on the lake higher up so he was being um, a good dad <laughs> yeah he was very much on top of it eventually it got to the point where the parties were just like okay this is enough we can't physically do this at the house anymore and they would let me do like one-off parties for like um the after prom party and i was in the theater program so we did the cast party every year that's when i get the idea to rent out this local downtown theater called the palace theater and I rent it out, turn it into a nightclub for the night. We have non-alcoholic bars. I hire the staff, the security, this, this, and that. Make so a couple grand. A big, I think a big question, I'm sorry to interject, is you're gonna, we're going to have people listening to this who are like, you know, 20 years old, 25, 35. And they are going to see, they're going to be like, man, I never took a risk like this. What in it, what was it in you at 15 years old that was fearless to go do this kind of stuff? Because most 15, 16 year olds would think, oh, I'm not old enough to get a permit. Oh, I'm not old enough to have an adult take me seriously. Oh, I'm not old enough to, you know, get permission from whoever to figure out how to do this. What made you just go after it? I think the biggest thing that you see in my story throughout everything, throughout before prison and now how I live my life now is I've always been someone that's so much like different. I always am the person that went against the crowd. So in middle school, they're like, okay, you can't wear backpacks. So I was a kid that started a backpack petition and I was wearing backpacks and I was so- <laughs> Backpack petition, I love it. Yeah, everyone was like, all of my friends' parents were like, you have to go to college to be successful. You have to get good grades. So automatically that triggers in my mind saying, well, there's gotta be an option to not go to college and be successful. Why do you need to go to college to be successful? So that's always been like a reoccurring theme. And I think like once I got out of prison, and I'm working, you know, for Whole Foods for for like almost three years. And I, that mentality came back to me. It's like a light switch came on where it's like, what if there's more than this out there for me? What if there's something I can create from this? And that's always just been like a reoccurring theme in my life. So you were you were uh, you transitioned from house parties to throwing these real parties. Talk to me a little bit about how these uh, parties in a separate venue kind of blew up in a, in a good way, but ultimately a bad way. <laughs> So 
I feel like when you look at my whole story as a whole, I had a, a lot of luck. Like when, like when you think about like the way things went down and stuff, there should have been situations where it just ended right there. But I always got lucky. So like, for instance, the palace theater that I was telling you about, the owner said, we don't want to do shows anymore. Um, after the first one, it's too much of a liability, which made sense because kids were getting drunk, like pre-gaming, there was ambulance rides, this and that. And so um, I got lucky and I stumbled across this local downtown venue, which is this historic rock venue called Tuxedo Junction. And I convinced the owner to let me rent the place out. And this is always a funny story because he was a seasoned nightclub owner and he um, he did not believe that I could do any numbers or, or pack the pack the room out. So he's he probably thinking like you and two friends and your mom and dad might show up or something. <laughs> yeah, because I'm I'm a 16 year old kid now at the time who is dressed in a suit and tie because at this point I was wearing a suit and tie to work thinking I was a businessman <laughs> and um, I would wear the suit and tie and I'm like. I'll pack your building out, which was like over a thousand people. He doesn't believe me, but he gives me the benefit of the doubt. And this is another situation where it's like, if he never gave me a chance, me and you wouldn't be having this conversation right now. And I probably would have went to college and I'd be working some corporate job right now. Um, but he gives me the chance and we packed that room out 200 kids. It was like a Wednesday night. He gave me some crap night and then he lets me rent the big room. And each event I do like five shows, each one bigger than the first one. And to put it into perspective, I'm 16 years old, walking away with $10,000 in profit a night each month in cash. And these events just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And they're like these theme style parties. And I was the first person in the Connecticut to like bring electronic dance music to this town that no one's ever heard of. So you're 16 years old and you have $10,000. You probably think you're Bill Gates of Connecticut. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I was always a big spender. I was spending it on my friends. Like everyone was broke. So I was like, hey, let's go out to dinner. I would pay for the dinners. I got burned on a couple cars. I bought like this. I needed an Audi. So I buy this piece of shit $6,000 Audi. And the thing, the check engine light goes on the next day. Like I was just like, I always did that. I was always a spender. I never really saved or anything. But that's how I got into the promotion and nightclub business. And I was good at it. Like I was really good at marketing and getting people to go and, and to buy into a hype. And, and I was all about the experience. It's one thing to get the people there, which is a hard feat in itself. But once they're there, how do you retain those individuals to stay there? So they come back again, because anyone can do a show. Well, not anyone, but most people could do a show and have a one hit wonder and make X amount of dollars. But how do you keep that long term? And how do you turn it into a business? So eventually you are doing this and uh, the, the, the three-letter uh, agencies catch up to you for whatever reason and decide that you're doing something fraudulent. T tell me about that. If that was a uh, defining moment in your life and how the heck did you turn that into something positive now? Because I think that that's one of the most fascinating parts of the story because you probably know way better than I do, but People, when people go to prison, it can change them for the worse in a lot of ways or make them feel like society's against them. Our culture in America makes it seem like if you go to prison, we're just going to throw you out and not really take you serious anymore. You've done a 180 and used it to your advantage. So talk to me about why you went there and how the heck did you turn this thing into a positive? So the shortened version is I jumped, I moved from nightclubs to concerts and, um, and took on investor money. And when the show started losing money, 
I lied to cover up those losses. So that's like the fraud aspect. And we kept continuing to get money. And this is all when I'm not even 18 years old yet. And it feeds into when I'm 18. So eventually this, this is all over like a six month period of time. And by the time the local police got involved, I'm like, you know, $1 million in debt with interest without interest. It's like 500,000. And um, the local police push it up to like the state's attorney who didn't really want to prosecute it, uh, prosecute it. They figured it was a civil case. And then there was a detective like in every, you know, movie like Wolf of Wall Street, whatever movie that there's like that detective that's got the heart <laughs> on it and pushes it out there. So this detective got it up to the level of the U.S. attorney. And that's when the FBI and the postal inspectors got involved. And one year later, I was indicted um, January 2015, 19 years old. Um, by federal agents um, on 15 federal counts, wire fraud, money laundering, and making a false statement. And um, Man, I bet that's, that must have been a, you know, just a sinking feeling. It definitely was, but I was someone that always made lemonade out of lemons. Um, when that happened, I'm running the biggest nightclub in, in Connecticut, essentially, for electronic dance music, which had nothing to do with the fraud whatsoever, which a lot of the news gets wrong. Um, the club was its own entity. I started the club after the investigation. And the crazy thing about this whole criminal case is that while I'm being prosecuted by the biggest government law offices in the world, um, I'm running this nightclub as a teenager against all odds with no money. <laughs> and booking While you have all these people. charges against you, just like, hold my beer exactly. or my, yeah. my whatever. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to go I'm run booking. this nightclub. <laughs> Yep. And I'm booking Steve Aoki, the Chainsmokers, you know, Adventure Club, the biggest acts. And um, I just had that drive. Like it was a never give up attitude. The world was caving in around me. And I just like, you know, I did what I had to do. And that obviously led to me making other decisions that at the time I felt were right, which one of them being like going out of state to gamble. Um, I would go out of state to gamble, to raise money, to pay these artists. So I didn't get blacklisted because I had literally no money and uh, <laughs> did not manage the finances well at the club because I would take that money that I'd get instead of paying bills, I would pay old debt and bad debt. So it was taking good money and paying bad money. Um, so I never got ahead. And eventually I get sentenced to three years in prison. And that whole time in federal prison, I was very determined that my redemption story was going to be you know, one through like a book or a movie. Um, I believed my story was good. I watched like Jordan Belfort's movies. I read all of his books. I wanted to be like that. I wanted to come out, get a book deal, get a movie deal, bam, everyone's paid back and then jump back in the nightclub business. When I got out in January, 2019, I think I was like 24. Um, I realized quickly that that wasn't going to happen uh, that fast. And I came out swinging, saying I was going to open a nightclub again, this and that. And that eventually faded into me, you know, actively trying to pursue the TV or movie deal. And eventually we landed the thing with HBO, the documentary. Yeah. Um, but I, I jumped into working at Whole Foods. I had worked at Whole Foods for a month before I went to prison. And I started as a, um, um, a, a, is a chef for the hot bar. And I worked my way up to the team leader position. Do you think um, that was important to like almost start from the bottom in your world? Because, you know, you're used to being the guy, the flashy guy. Everybody loves you. You're throwing these huge parties. You're and now you have to literally start working at a grocery store. Is that was that a a, a good humbling experience for you? 
Uh, so I've always been the type of person that was always hardworking. Nothing was ever handed to me. It's not like anyone handed me the club. Like I grinded for it. I always yeah. held jobs during the trial. I worked at a Chinese restaurant while yes. running. This club. Uh, I think I remember uh, hearing that in the documentary, you're yeah. like delivering food as you're working. As yeah. Like, like I do it. I'm the type of person, like even now I Uber drive on top of running the podcast, doing everything else. Like I do whatever it takes. Yeah. Um, but working at Whole Foods created a new life that I never thought was possible. And I had never lived before because when I was running this club, you know, I lived with my parents, I was overweight. I had no money for myself and nothing. So Whole Foods gave me stability. It, it built my credit up. It gave me an apartment. It gave me a car. It, it made me totally self-sufficient where, you know, six months after prison, I didn't need to depend on my parents at all for anything. That's so awesome. I put in those hours and, and I really you know, for three years, I thought my future was Whole Foods. I saw myself going to the top, like people bash a grocery store, but the store managers make six figures. Uh, last year, I was on track to make a little over a hundred grand if I didn't quit with overtime. And I just poured my heart and soul into Whole Foods. And um, I worked a side job at, at, at DoorDash and for pizzerias, I was making pizza at restaurants and I'd work for my dad's catering company. Hustle and grind, and then, hustle and grind. Hustle and grind. And also it was good to, to keep me out of trouble in a sense, like when I was on supervised release. And then when I got on supervised release in May, you know, I worked there last, this is last year. And then August, you know, um, I had started social media in July. My friend was like, Ian, you got to get on TikTok. It's blowing up. Your story would do great. And I started doing it in July and it was getting some numbers, but I didn't know where it was going to go. And then one day um, a representative from MTV called me. And was like, hey, we want you a part of this dating show. Um, you're going to go you know, out of the country. Um, you have a really interesting story. It's a new series we're launching. We want you a part of it. You're getting big on social media, this and that. And at the time, I only had like 20,000 followers or not even. I think I had like 10,000, something along those lines. And it would if I got the position with MTV, then I would have um, had to be out of the country for three months. So as soon as I heard that before even getting the position, I go to Whole Foods and, and I quit. I put in my two weeks. And at that point, I was just like so fed up with like the grind every day of like being the hardest worker in the room and not really getting anything out of it. Yes, I benefited financially, but it wasn't like when you're around a lot of people that make a lot more money than you that do 10% of the work you do, it's, it's very defeating for someone that's very ambitious. Like corporations like that are not set up to retain like the highest level of employee. And so, you know, without hesitation, I put in the two weeks and I ultimately didn't end up getting casted in that show. And when I tell you that was the best thing that could have ever happened to me, because <laughs> it just made me double down on social media and just grind it out every day, posting three to five times a day. And then everything's timing. Like, I feel like had I started earlier, who knows if it would have turned out this way. And just like everything in my life has always been about perfect timing and everything that I went through everything that I learned has brought me to this point that I like that has helped me get to this point that I can apply all that knowledge. Cause the same, it's all part of the entertainment business. Um, so my knowledge of marketing and everything applies to the podcast world. When we fly out podcast guests, I'm treating them like they're the biggest artist in the world, you know, just with the hospitality level, our video production's good. Back when we were doing club nights, we always recorded an after movie. So that's why we apply like video and stuff. And I just, I taught myself how to edit. I make all of our own like little reels and clips. 
And um, I just like, I, I adapt quickly. I learn and, and I watch and um, that's what's got me to where I'm at right now. There's no menial task in the kingdom of hustle and grind. <laughs> <laughs> I do whatever it takes, man. Yeah. I used to clean the bat. I, there would be nights during the club days where we would have two shows back to back and I would sleep for an hour on the couch in the office because I had no money to pay a cleaner. I would stay there all night, clean every ounce of confetti, clean every recycling bottle. And I would just, I would grind whatever it took. Did you ever find yourself laying in your bed thinking, I can't like, I've, I've, I'm drained. I can't do this another day. What was it that got you up the next morning to keep at it? I mean, I still have some of those days, but you get, I think you get hope when you see how far you've come. And like, there, there's always going to be something like I'm someone that loves the chase and loves the journey. So like on days I'm down, then maybe like there'll be a video that blows up and it, and it does 5 million views. And it's like, wow, this is the thing that keeps you going. So back then when I had those days, like I'd have a big show that would make some money or an artist like shout us out or whatever. That kept me pushing. Yeah. There was never a situation where it was just like failure after failure after failure. You know, the universe always threw in, like it gave me a bone in some senses to like keep me afloat. And so I feel like now I get that now where it's just like, you know, there's days where it's tough. Like being 24 seven on social media it's it's exhausting. Like I don't have a someone running it for me. There's no money to afford. <laughs> this someone is you with your phone and some, Listen, some editing tools. My my day looks like when we have a podcast guest come in. I'm driving an hour to New York City to pick them up. I'm driving two hours to the studio. We're filming. We're driving two hours back to New York City to drop them off, and then an hour back home. And that's just like me saving the two or three hundred dollars. Um, and flight fares and whatever it's like it's whatever it takes to make it work and that's what it takes to be successful you know in this day and age and I feel like I'm right on the verge of it getting to that level I just have to stick with it and when I look at it now like last month we did 20 million views alone on one platform how do you quit from that how do you walk away even if the money's not there yet to have that much progress and to have like 20,000 downloads on the podcast not counting YouTube in the first you know 30 45 days how do you just say, I'm going back to a normal job at that point? You can't. Like any sane person is not going to just walk away and give that up. So I have to stick it through and I just have to do whatever I have to do in between that until it makes it to that level that I could support myself. So now you have a show that you're producing, you're making yourself called Commissary Cookoff. Tell folks a little bit about that. We got a couple more minutes and where they can find it. So I have two shows. I have the Locked In with Ian Big podcast. That's my podcast. And then I just started the Commissary Cookoff, uh, which is, you know, people that have been to prison before, or now we're starting to get people that haven't been to prison. They come on the show and they have 10 minutes to make a dish using only items found in the prison commissary. And we see who the best winner is. And it's starting to do very well on YouTube. Um, it, it, the idea has never been done before, which is interesting. Well, I see all these every once in a while, I'll see these videos on my Instagram reels that will do amazing of these guys that will cook these things that they come up with in jail. So I think it's ingenious that you've started a TV show around it because uh, it's very fascinating for folks. Um, do you have any last minute things before we head off here? No, I appreciate the time. Anyone that wants to connect, they could just, you know, go to ianvic.com that plugs into everything. And, you know, uh, I appreciate the support and everyone that watches and listens. Awesome. Well, Ian, I really appreciate it. We wish you nothing but success here from Must Read Alaska. And I think it's really your story is a, a story of hope for folks, because I think a lot of times, especially here in the U.S., we 
once folks go to jail, we kind of just ostracize them. And I think that your story brings a whole new aspect of hope to folks that have maybe done something in their life and they, they feel like they don't have a second chance. You're inspiring folks to say they do have a second chance. I think that's a big deal. So keep doing what you're doing and we'll make sure to put all the links in the podcast description. And until next time, I'm John Quick from somewhere in Alaska.